0: Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. It's brutal. It's brutal, but it's divine, and it's perfect, and it's good. It's Jesus. It's God speaking. And this comes right on the heels of this incredible prophecy about what God would do Through Peter and his ministry, Peter was the rock upon whom the church would be built, and this refers to Peter getting up at Pentecost and addressing the crowd in a loud voice, giving an expository sermon on Joel chapter 2, seeing the Holy Spirit pour out upon Jews. And then again, in Acts chapter 10, through Peter, speaking to Gentiles. Salvation is first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile, and the church is born into the New Testament era whereupon we are now filled with the Holy Spirit. That was a pivotal moment. It was prophesied over Peter, but this came shortly after that. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you do not have in mind the things of God, but the concerns of men. This was different. This was a pivot. This was another fulfillment of what had taken place throughout Jesus's ministerial arc. Now, Matthew's gospel is a collection of teachings, but those, those teachings are not completely randomized in their order. There is a vague chronology as we go through the gospel of Matthew, because obviously the gospel of Matthew ends in chapter 28 with Jesus resurrected. So it's not as though it's completely, completely unsorted. There is a chronology here. At this point in Jesus's teaching, particularly in the way that he was speaking to his disciples, remember this moment, because when you get to the passion narratives. When you get to the cross, you see the disciples scatter. And then for three days, they're all disillusioned. For three days, they're bewildered. For three days, they're crestfallen. And they're acting like it's all been a sham. It's all been a lie. I was deluded. It was He wasn't who I thought he was. What's going on here? Remember this text, because Jesus "...from then on," verse 21 says, "...began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders, to be crucified and resurrected." So, this was not the one time they heard this. It was from this point on, through Jesus' teaching, that he began to reveal this to them. And yet, it was lost on them when the moment finally came. They scattered, many of them. John stayed by the cross. Peter watched from a distance. But we see them confused. We see them bewildered. We see Jesus then disguise himself and walk among them on the road to Emmaus, for example, showing how he himself was the fulfillment of everything that was prophesied from Moses on. And the law and the prophets, all that was about him. So remember this. Jesus told them everything before it happened. We've watched how Matthew is a fulfillment of Isaiah and other Old Testament prophecies. But now we're going to see Jesus make prophecies within Matthew that are fulfilled. Not only in Matthew, but also in Mark and Luke and John. We're roughly equivalent now in the narrative of John chapter 6 with the, the miraculous feedings. But at this point in the uh, in Matthew's gospel, you're going to see things change. He's telling his disciples what's going to happen. He's also going to start getting more and more direct with the Pharisees. Okay, He told them they were blasphemous, and then he goes back into parables. But as we get to, especially Matthew chapter 21, you're going to see Jesus again take on a more pointed view. Up to this point, he would heal people and then evade the crowd. He would heal someone and then tell them to be quiet about it. But that's going to shift as we continue through Matthew, because now he's being more overt, particularly with his disciples, that he's going to die and that he's going to resurrect. So when we see the disciples after the crucifixion, This is what they're culpable unto, and they don't really adhere to it. They don't retain it. How much of God's word have you forgotten? How many times have you had those youth camp, Holy Spirit filled, Bible high experiences, and then you forget them when you get back into traffic on Monday morning? From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him. Now, why is it necessary It's necessary because it's the sovereign will of God and what God decrees comes to pass, period. He does everything that he says he will do. He has said that he will do this and so it will be done. It is therefore necessary, especially from our perspective, temporally, as people who are bound by the ticking of the clock. We are moving through time at a current rate of 60 beats per minute and we cannot speed that up. I mean, maybe we could fly the close gravitational pull of a massive, inter, you know, uh, a celestial body with Matthew McConaughey, and see time kind of change from our perspective. But we can't change the elapsation of time here. We're bound. Our, our our feet are glued to the conveyor belt. And so, from our perspective, it is necessary that things would take place. From the perspective of God. Okay strive to grasp it fail but strive nonetheless it was already done it was already accomplished he had spoken it he had foreknown all of it he is the author over history he foreknew about the fall of man back in eden he already knew exactly what he would do before the foundations of the earth to redeem and in all of this it is based on what we know to be true of the character and nature of god best that this would all take place it was therefore necessary that the son would be murdered by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be raised on the third day. So Peter's response was a momentary lapse of faith, albeit one that was rooted in genuine affection and love. He loves Jesus. But when he says no, he commits a sin. No, vocative case, Hama, Lord. The text says, oh no, Lord. Right there, pause right there. To say no to the Lord evidences that He's not Lord in your life in that particular regard. No, Lord. This sentence ought not exist. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Now consider the implications of Peter's proclamation. If that never happens, you and I will remain dead in our sin. There will be no atoning sacrifice to cover the sins of all who believe in Jesus. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you, was precisely the will of the devil. (laughs) But coming out of Peter's mouth, overflowing from Peter's boiling heart, what emerged was a momentary, temporal, emotional response. I don't want you to die, Jesus, because I love you. But what came out in his intense emotion was satanic because of the son never goes to the cross and resurrects again there is no payment for sins he is our propitiation see the book of hebrews so this is why jesus responds so harshly jesus turned and told peter get behind me satan ouch you see the satanic narrative within peter's outburst and hence Jesus spoke something that is absolutely true. Get behind me, Satan. What Peter had just spoken, what he had articulated, was precisely the will of Satan. Satan would have nothing more than for this to never happen. The cross was his humiliation. Just wait until we get to Revelation, by the way. You are a hindrance to me. Ooh, that's gotta hurt. To be a hindrance to Jesus, to either work in accordance with the divine will of God or to be a hindrance. We cannot be neutral, especially not as people who are born totally depraved. You are a hindrance to me. Oh, God, let me never be a hindrance to the gospel, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. The emotion that Peter felt was merely human. It was merely temporal. It was only in the moment. And it was not from the divine perspective of Holy God, the Father, who had preordained that this would take place before the foundations of the earth. Jesus loves Peter. Peter's going to fail again before we're done here. But this beloved bonehead is the one through whom the Holy Spirit would work to address the massive crowd. This beloved Peter, who inadvertently articulated the very ethos of Satan to Jesus, is the one who would leave the Sanhedrin dumbfounded, though he himself was an uneducated fisherman. This beloved bonehead would write through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, to the persecuted Christians in Rome in AD 64. This guy is the one through whom the Holy Spirit would launch the church into the New Testament era. So don't feel too badly for Peter. Okay, that may have been the greatest on his bloopers reel, but Jesus would sit with him on the beach in John 21 and restore him. You know, that's what Jesus does. (laughs) Have you had your own kind of boneheaded moment with God? Look at Peter in this text. This is the guy through whom Jesus would launch the church. Now just imagine what he can do through you. Let's pray. God, we see the righteous directness with which you corrected Peter when he inadvertently articulated the very ethic of Satan to try to stop the work of the Messiah. Oh God, would you forgive us for ways in which we've failed you? Oh God, you restored Peter. You used Peter mightily. Would you restore us? Would you forgive us? Would you use us and bring revival to this place? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.